Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. I've never, I've never experienced a time where I haven't gathered with other people in the name of Jesus Christ and the Spirit hasn't been there. The Spirit is here in this room. The Spirit is within us. We brought it with us, and it was here to meet us. We are in the presence of the Lord, and the Lord welcomes us. Let's go to God in prayer. We thank you, God, for your word, for the fact that your presence reaches out across all time and space, and there are no boundaries for how your word can reach us and touch us and move us and inspire us and guide us. Help us, O God, to hear the message that you have for each of us. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I grew up going to the movies. Um, It was, that was what you had to do. I'm not going to even tell you how old I am because... You might start counting, and then you'll know. It was talkies, by the way. (laughs) And um, we had one movie theater in Brawley, and every two weeks it changed films. But Saturdays and Sundays, when I was growing up, every kid who was old enough to buy Junior Mints was dropped off at the theater, and we spent the whole afternoon there because it was always a double feature, a double feature of... um, Uh, either a swashbuckling pirate film and then a Western, something that really got us going. And you can imagine the management there was so thrilled. There were probably uh, 800 kids in that place, all unmanaged and untamed. So it was the wild, wild west. And then afterwards, we'd go home by the truckload in the back of my dad's pickup truck sometimes, and we'd get dropped off at our houses. And then we start playing out all those movies with each one of us the hero, of course. Um, When the movies were about the Bible, every adult would take their entire family to see that movie. It was, um, when I think back, I see the, I see why. It's, it was seemed like the right thing to do, and it was a way to expose your kids to the Bible. <laughs> um, so I saw the Ten Commandments and Ben Hur and the Shoes of the Fisherman and Samson and Delilah and the Silver Chalice and all these films that you may or may not have ever heard of. I don't think it ever occurred to a single person in the audience that this was ho- Hollywoodology more than theology, and it was a. Uh, uh, maybe harmless to a certain extent, except for, you know, Hollywood has a way of saying this happened, and then everyone hit, lived happily ever after, and it's all tied up neat and tidy. And that's far from what we understand of the Christian life or even of the stories of the Bible, because the stories are not ended. They're continuing to move forward. As I began to pursue my vocation as a student of the Bible, I came to realize how off sometimes those films were if you've ever seen them. Of course, you can't say, because what they do is they take everything that happens, you know, in the whole New Testament, they put it in a two-hour movie. And so you have strange people saying strange things, but it's somewhere in the Bible. 
But the outline may have been there in these movies, but the personal stuff was all made up. The dialogue between people, the romances between people, the hero that was not a hero, the smoke and the fire of God's voices and the human conflicts and all the love interests. And, and by the way, they were all beautiful people. And by the way, they were all Americans. <laughs> so we have your blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus. And we have John Wayne as a centurion. That's the kind of thing that Hollywood had for us. Um, and why was it made up? Well, it was made up because it was Hollywood. But it was also made up because they couldn't find all of that in the biblical material. It, it just wasn't there. And so as I, as I told you, when I was growing into my vocation as a student of the Bible, I became convinced that filling in the blanks uh, was a really critical mistake to make for anyone that was serious about the Bible's teachings and the Bible's guidance. Because what is needed to be known is in the Bible. And when you make up things and you speculate and you begin to shift the focus, which often we do, from the message to the person in the story, then not only are you focusing on the wrong thing, but you're really in danger of missing the whole point of the text. I've noticed that this is particularly true for some reason in studies for women, about women. For There's not a lot of information about the women that are named in the Bible. And so a lot of times studies will speculate and they'll make up all these um, motivations and the feelings and all of these things for this person. And some of them may be legitimate, implicit, but most of them are just made up. That's dangerous. Because then you're focusing on the person and you're not focusing on the message and you miss it. So we come uh, to a preaching text like our text today and what's interesting about the text is I looked at it, I said, well, these are two verses. Two verses that we're going to be preaching on. And the two verses are not filled with a lot of energy and a lot of, of, of all sorts of stuff that I could throw out there and just you know, have you enthralled at the edge of your seat. Two verses which includes the name of a woman that's not heard about before this and it's never heard about again after this. So it, it became very important for me not to slip into that easy way of making up Phoebe's take on this whole adventure. It, and to not overlay her emotions or potential relationships or story with my own fantasy or my own wishful thinking is harder than that sometimes. What you have to do is you have to go back and you have to look and you have to say, what is the text saying? And how does this text, how does this story unpack even in, late, in later scripture? Because story interprets story in scripture. Scripture will interpret itself. If you can keep reading and if you can keep the pattern in place, which is sometimes very difficult to do. So I look at this and I think, what, is this, what are these two verses really about? The story is not about Phoebe, but Phoebe has a way of informing us about what the story is about. And that's what I'd like to look at. So our text today is Romans 16, 1 through 2. This is Paul speaking. 
I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sincre, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. This is the word of the Lord. The event that split history into before and after took place some 30 years before this letter was written. The event, which of course was the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the quick rise of this letter is somewhat amazing because it comes from an obscure Roman citizen who had few or no connections in Rome. A stranger to the Roman church. He had never visited Rome. It comes from Paul. But when we read it for ourselves, we begin to understand that it's not It's not who wrote the letter that's important. It's what the letter says that's important. So once more, we're reminded that it's not the messenger. It's the message itself. And that no obscurity or writer or readers could keep it obscure for very long. The letter to the Romans is a piece of exuberant and and passionate thinking. And what intrigues me about this is that you look at this writing and you say, this is what it looks like. It's the glorious life of a mind that's been enlisted into the service of the Lord. Can you imagine what we're all capable of when we're enlisted into the service of the Lord? Paul is capable of this. Paul takes the well-witnessed and devoutly believed facts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what he does in Romans. He thinks through all the implications. He begins to engage in the so what? So what if Jesus died? So what if Jesus saved us from our sin? So what? What are the implications of that? What are the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus? What are the implications that world history took a completely different direction? And that every man and woman and child on this planet was eternally affected. So what? What is God up to? Are the Jews in or the Jews out? Where do we fit in into this covenant history? I mean, all of these questions. Paul is willing to take and say, okay, now you get it. Now you belong to Jesus. So what? That's what Paul is saying in this letter. What does it mean that Jesus saves? What's behind all this? And where are we going after we're saved? What happens now? So it's really a story of discipleship. That's what it is. You've gotten the facts down. Now you you belong to Jesus. You've been baptized. You're saved. Now what are you going to do with your salvation? These are the questions that drive Paul's thinking, and they drive his teaching. He takes logic and argument, and he takes poetry and imagination. He takes scripture and prayer. He takes creation and history and experience, and he weaves them all together in this letter. In this letter that then becomes the premier letter, the premier document of Christian theology, even still today. Now, Paul was counting on this letter for something big. What he was counting on was that this letter was going to expose the the Christians in Rome to introduce them to him and his thinking 
and his theology because he needed them. He needed them to support him because they were the gateway to the West. And his whole intention was to take the gospel onto Spain and onto the whole West. His whole intention was that the Gentile world would come to know Jesus, and he needed Rome as that gateway. So this was, he was counting on a lot happening from this particular letter. Paul was counting on a robust relationship coming out of this letter when he would finally get to go to Rome. He was committed. There was a lot riding on their acceptance of this letter. So I wonder what you would do if you had struggled and sweated over crafting a document that would explain to the nth degree who you are, what you're about, what you believe, how you answer all these questions, how you see the big picture of the purpose of each of us in our life of creation. What would you do if you sweated that out and crafted that piece of communication? And then you needed to give it to the world so that they would accept you so that you could go on and do the purpose of you. I wonder if you would stand on Mars Hill as he had done in Athens and deliver it to the masses and then they would see and they would open their doors or, or, or would you request an audience with the emperor go to right to the top? Would you seek the company of the most learned spiritual leaders so that they could get on board with you and they could support your purpose and your endeavor? Would you get a, an agent and sign a book deal and maybe go to Rome and sign books, sign letters? Do you ensure this text to somebody else to interpret for you? A lot was writing on it, but Paul did none of those things. In these two verses, we learn that Paul took that document, that carefully crafted document, that treaties, that, that explanation of all of creation and all of the world, and what does it all boil down to now? He took that, and he gave it to a deacon, a woman who was a deacon in a church nearby, and a benefactress to him. He asked Phoebe to deliver the letter. And when you ask someone to deliver a letter, what you are asking them to do is stay and teach the letter, answer the questions about the letter, become the the expert on campus, the theologian on campus, so that people with their concerns could come and ask these questions. This was who Phoebe was. A friend of mine is a, a therapist, and we were talking one day about the different models of therapy. And she was sharing with me that some people need to go back, all the way back to the beginning, because they've been so interrupted in their life and so traumatized by something that happened that they need to go back to unravel. But other people just go back. It's just like you know rehashing their, their life. And what they need to do is just start right now. Where are you right now? And how can you move forward from here? And, and that's how I see it as we come to Phoebe. We don't know anything about her life. We don't know if she was you know, full of demons and, and they've been delivered like Mary uh, Magdalene, seven spirits. 
We don't know if she had been uh, an adulteress and so was forgiven for her sins. We don't know if she had been a woman at a well. We don't know anything about her story. All we know is we pick up right where she is. We don't know how she came to know Jesus. We don't know how she came to be a leader in the church. We don't know any of that because it's not important. What we do know is that the scripture reveals to us that she's named as a deacon and a benefactor. And being a benefactor doesn't mean that she just helped out with hospitality, although that's what it included. Being a benefactor actually meant that she was a certain class of people vital for the health of ancient societies who put all of their private means at public disposal. That means she paid for a lot of stuff. And this kind of like our endowment or our legacy, you know, fund here, she made sure that things, you know, with her own money, that things happened. And she served as a servant as well. It's interesting that she's a benefactress and she's also a deacon. And they made sure that we knew that. I don't think that's a small thing. What we're given is the significant role that she's entrusted with of bringing the teachings that will guide people into a life that, where their lives are formed by the spirit of Jesus. Why is she entrusted with this work? And why not Timothy or Lucius, who are always also named here? In fact, 29 other people are named by Paul in this particular, at the end of this particular letter. So what I'd like to do is just, is just present to you kind of for us to unpack together two issues that I think Paul was dealing with in his decision to entrust Phoebe with this um, important letter. Paul is constantly plagued by leadership in these fledging churches that are trying to um, jockey for position of power and for position of, of leadership. You know, we saw it way back in the story of Jesus and the two brothers who said, who's going to be on your right hand? Who's going to be first in the kingdom? And, you know, they're already jockeying. And this is what was happening in these churches. Not only was that happening, but he had to deal with people who were comparing and preferring other people's teaching to his. And there were even churches who, who were shifting their attention to the speaker rather than to the message. And to those who offered allegiance to motivational speakers rather than the messengers of God. It, what Paul was dealing with at that time was idolatry. He was dealing with uh, an idolatry that he was working tirelessly against. And in Romans, you'll see it over and over and over again. For those who come to worship the messenger rather than the message. The, the congregation was even squabbling among themselves about who is the best speaker, who is the best teacher, who is the most spiritual leader of, of their, all their leaders. Can you imagine? They were calling the church before Sunday to see who was preaching. I can't even imagine that. <laughs> it's beyond me to even fathom. For those who uh, were following Jesus, but not following Jesus, following what other people were saying about Jesus. Paul warns against this type of behavior again and again, but most strongly in 1 Corinthians, listen to this. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So Paul is fighting against this idolatry this jockeying for power and positions. And in other words, what he's saying is keep your eyes on Jesus. Walk in the way of Jesus. Worship only God. And Phoebe, as we can see, because she's never mentioned again, and she's never mentioned before this, is not a one that's jockeying for a position. She is a servant of Christ at a church in Sincrae. We know that. Secondly, most of our scriptures are primarily texts that are directed to ordinary people. Just ordinary people. Ordinary living. There are no generalities here. Nothing is programmatic. Paul works entirely in the context of a congregation of souls. He's talking about people. Men and women who are called upon to repent and believe and obey and love and to forgive and to work as they go about their daily lives of preparing meals and raising children and being in community together, these scriptures are written for them. Everyone who comes to this book of Romans needs to be reminded that primarily, Romans is primarily a book of spiritual formation in a community of souls. This is saying, here's why we follow Jesus. Here's how we follow Jesus. It's a personal address to a mixed congregation of Gentiles and Jews, and many of whom were slaves and most of whom couldn't read. So this was so important for an ordinary person to be able to explain this to people who were not educated, but only faithful. And Paul's intellect is totally in the service of men and women like us, when, when, when we're the ones that are being formed in the spirit of the life of Christ. So I ask you this, do you have a relationship with Christ? And you have to answer that question. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Then you have a witness that's informed by scripture. All that you know about Jesus is from scripture. Share it. Get a group together and talk about it. Talk about your lives in Christ together. Rejoice. Be joyful that you have a community that you can share with. Be joyful with those who don't yet know Christ, that you have a message for them. Share your life. Pray together. Phoebe didn't arrive on there as a scholar or as a theologian, neither. She arrived only with her own witness of what had happened to her and this document from Paul and then talking as an ordinary person to them 
to try to unpack all that that means and all that that requires of our life. She arrived only with her own witness to enable her to share those principles and, and a willingness to engage in the questions. And I'm sure there was not just one time when Phoebe said, I'm not sure. I don't know about this, but here's what I'm sure about. Wait till Paul comes and he can answer that question. And then I'm sure when Paul got there, he said, I'm not sure. I'm still working on that. Christ is still working in me because it's Christ that has the answers. Phoebe's not looking for a following in Rome in any position in power. The gospel is never impersonal. That's what strikes me. The gospel is never impersonal. It's just as the gospel lodges in places. I mean, think about it. Eden and, and Egypt and Mount Sinai and Mount Ararat and Bethlehem and Nazareth and Galilee and Jerusalem. It's all set in places. So it's embodied and it's embodied by people with names or with descriptions. So we have Adam and Eve and Noah and we have Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Esau, Rachel, Leah, we have Moses and David, and we have Mary and Elizabeth, the blind man, the hemorrhaging woman, the, the, the demoniac in, in the Garden of the Gerasene, the beloved disciple. We have all of these places and names with these places. It's never unplaced, and it's never impersonal. And that's one thing that we have to remember today. Every detail in Scripture finds its root in some place, and its embodiment in some person. So today, the gospel finds its root in San Marino, embodied in you. You are among this list, and we are among these places. Perhaps we're all kind of Phoebes to, our, to some extent, each and every single one of us, all of us who are just ordinary people struggling to serve Christ and to love God and to follow the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're trying to do. We're just ordinary people trying to do that. And we've been entrusted with this remarkable, sacred, and holy word, the walking around living word that is Jesus Christ, and this remarkable uh, text, which is the written word, that's our scriptures, and the preached word, which is our story, your story, None of us are asked to become great theologians, and none of us are asked to become magnetic or charismatic orators. It all helps. But we're not asked to do that. We're asked to be faithful followers of Christ, and we're asked to share the story of Jesus, the story that's been given to each of us. Amen. God, we thank you for the story that you've given us. Not only the story of all that you've been about in the world and all that you hope for the world and all that you envision for the world, the story of your kingdom, the story of your power and your glory and your might, the story of your compassion and your love, the story of your broken heart and the story of our redemption. Not only that, but the story of our lives. You are a God that is the one true God of all times, all places, and we thank you. And we pray that we might bring glory to you, our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.